Well, beloved, do take your Bibles and turn them open to the book of James. I certainly felt compelled to offer to the Lord an extra prayer. I don't think we can pray too much in the sense of blessing His name and acknowledging our need for Him to come and meet with us. If you would stand with me and in honor and adoration, not only for the Lord, but His precious Word. I will read verse 19 of chapter 5 and verse 20. Hear now, beloved, the Word of the living and true and only God. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray again. Now, Father, give us light to this Word. Lord, the precious gift of truth is something that we should not overlook or take for granted, but at this moment and in this hour, we pray that in Your presence we would have a sensitivity, a mind, a heart, O Lord, for this Word, that we would take to heart what it says, what it's teaching us about ourselves and about Your grace and mercy, and we would be moved to greater sanctification. We would be moved to greater openness about the truth and the gospel that is only found in Jesus Christ and no other. Now bless this word, O Lord, to our hearts, to our homes, to this body. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week I introduced the theme of these two verses, which I still hold that it is the ministry of reclamation. It is the... The, the work that the body of Christ must put its mind and heart and hands to, that the church of Jesus Christ should be a, a fellowship and communion of brothers and sisters and homes that love one another, that care for one another, and seek the good of one another. And without This gospel obedience that James is calling us to, it is certainly impossible to truly make those claims of loving one another if we are unwilling to go after our brothers and sisters when they stray. Now I want this morning to take each of you a little deeper into the thinking of James as he closes this letter with these words. The first thing that I think is that we should notice from the text, or the first thing I want to bring your attention to, is the contemplation that we must all give to verse 19. Here in these words, James reminds us of a possibility of straying from the truth. And then in the end of verse 19 through verse 20, we see a gospel motivation. 
So we have two things that we're going to look at this morning, or at least one thing we're going to focus on this morning, and that is this personal, a personal contemplation. Something that we are called to this morning is to consider what James says in verse 19, and that is these words, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, that's going to be our focus. That is going to be our focus. James is promoting body life and a certain call to duty, a certain call to um, a, a certain call to obedience that is relegated to what happens when a brother or sister strays from the truth. He's promoting the idea that the body of Christ is to exercise Christ likeness. Now, brothers and sisters, who's the great reclaimer? Who's the one that left heaven? Who laid aside His glory and majesty to condescend and put on human flesh? To be born of a virgin? To be born in a manger? To live a very obscure, hard life? You know, when Jesus was a child, they sought to kill Him. His parents had to flee to another country. So this is the Lord Jesus we're talking about. This is the one who came from glory and walked on this earth perfectly before His heavenly Father and offered up to God a sacrifice without blemish that He might reclaim and return us back to God. And so I hope you make the connection in your mind and believe in your heart that a body, that the, 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 that the body of Christ that puts their hands to this gospel obedience is being like Jesus when they, when they exercise disobedience. Love for one another by letting go of popular ideas of manners or customs that would prevent us from going after those who err. Well, you know, we don't want to be rude. We don't want to overstep our boundaries. We don't want to be busybodies. And so we use all these excuses and all of these perceived manners to keep us from obeying and being like the Lord Jesus. Here's what I mean. In the Christian fellowship that practices what James is teaching in these two verses will be a loving and safe fellowship. Now I want you to consider that. Contemplate that. I want you to contemplate that. And I use the word contemplation purposely because it's a little stronger word than consider. We can consider things in passing. But to contemplate something is to give it study. It's to give it thought. Brothers and sisters, you can't give adequate thought to something unless you spend time thinking about it. And I mean more than five seconds. I mean more than a few minutes. I mean more than a simple conversation here and there. That's not contemplation. Contemplation is the study meditation. It is the deep consideration of a matter so that we can 
avoid something or do something properly. And in this situation, we want to avoid straying from the truth. But a Christian fellowship that practices this gospel obedience will be a loving and safe fellowship. But where this gospel obedience is avoided and not practiced, for whatever reason, due to laziness maybe, or fear of what others may think, or the fear of being falsely accused of being a busybody, no matter what that is, no matter what the perception, it will not be a loving, nor will it be a safe place for any believer. Anyone that says they love you and are allowing you to remain in your sin and stray from the truth and remain in error, brothers and sisters, is not loving you. And if you are not willing to do that for a son, a daughter, a wife, a husband, a pastor, a congregate, brother, sister, whatever the family relation, and certainly those closest to you, you should be willing to do that easier. I'm not saying go out to a stranger and confront them. That's not what this message is about. This message is about the body of Jesus Christ. And the gospel duty we owe to one another. Now it should be clear to you that James certain that in, that James implies the possibility of Christians wandering away from the truth that these are Christians these are not considered unbelievers James wants us to stop and consider and not jump to the conclusion oh if this believer or this brother or this sister adopts this particular doctrine they can't be christian so we just sweep them out the door we consider them as apostate unbelievers anyway and i won't waste my time james says no no don't do that as we will look and as we will notice as we go through various forms of passages of scripture we will see that this what james is saying is a true doctrine that Christians can err. Christians can actually adopt the wrong ideas and doctrines and uh, the wrong theology. And Christians can practice sinful things. So that should be clear to us that a Christian can wander away from the truth. However, brothers and sisters, if you've been sleeping your way through the book and have not taken advantage of many of its teachings, I, I don't know if these words will have the force that James intends them to have for you. If you've already developed a habit of coming and listening to certain things and, and really treating the Word of God more as a novelty than anything else, I dare to say to you this morning that these words will pierce your heart unless the Holy Spirit breathe fresh and anew upon you. You see, brothers, because when we begin to treat the Word of God lightly, a numbing takes place. We start numbing gospel sensitivities. And then we begin to treat the Word of God as just another piece of work. Just another 
plan, another method of living. And that's not the case. James has already taught us in chapter 3 that we stumble in many ways. And we're going to look at those this morning. So what are we to contemplate? Well, the first thing that I want to bring to your attention as you contemplate what James is saying about the Christian uh, having the ability to stray and err from the truth, I want to bring out the idea of possibility. The idea of possibility or proneness or the hypothetical that James uses here. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth. Now why is this idea of possibility important? Well, we don't want to say probable. If I left you with the idea that straying and erring from the truth was probable, then your flesh may be excited and then you would think, well, I'm going to sin anyway, so I might as well sin in the things I like. Do we want to do that? Would I be a good minister of the gospel and a good pastor to you if I taught you in a way that excited your flesh to sin? Or if I taught you in a way that brought gospel suppression and death to those sins that are already in you working, looking for any opportunity to sin against God. So I want to talk about the possibility. Now, why is this important? Because when we talk about the possibility, what we mean or what I mean by this is that if things are lined up, that is, if the circumstances present themselves and there are certain additions added to the circumstances, then it is very possible for the Christian to stray. Let me illustrate it and explain further. Let me sort of illustrate this meaning of possibility. It is possible where we live in the South under the right conditions to get snow in the winter, right? Under the right circumstances, it can snow. But snow is not something we see on a yearly basis. Snow is not something we can expect or plan for. None of us are going to plan to go skiing at the park this winter. Why? Because it doesn't snow here. However, the possibility of snow is increased by the right conditions and circumstances. I hope you can see how I'm using this word. And when those circumstances present themselves, then the probability of snow increases greatly. And it moves from being unusual to snow to snowing because of those conditions. Do you see that? I hope you understand what I'm saying. It's kind of like a math formula, or let me try to explain it. Maybe this is very shallow, but I hope you get it. And if it makes the truth ring home in your heart, I've accomplished what I've set out to do. First, conditions. Conditions. For example, chapter 1, we have the condition of a trial. Now, we need to add something to the condition. The trial alone is not enough to cause any believer to stray. But when the believer adds to the trial despondency, anger, bitterness, 
doubt. And then you add to that a, a, a moving away from the means of grace. You add to that, now you come to worship because you don't see God as a loving God or a tender God or a God who is no longer merciful, but a God who is judging you and punishing you and is hard on you and you become despondent to God. You become ill-thinking. Your thoughts now go to God is mean. Now you wouldn't say it, but you would act like it. You would stop reading your Bible. He would stop praying for the most part. Now, a Christian Christian can never be void of those desires. You know you should read it, but you don't take, you don't, you no longer have delight to read it. It's hard to read it. It's not joyful to read it. You're angry with God. And when you couple all these things together, guess what it equals? Straying from the truth. Those things that God brought into your life that were designed to mature your faith. When you should have acted in faith. When you should have acted in love toward God. I don't want anything to keep me from God. You've embraced the flesh and you've allowed the flesh to get excited because you begin entertaining in your head. I don't deserve this. I deserve so much more. So much better. Look what I do for the church. Look how many times I haven't missed church in so many years. God, why would you bring this hardship into my life? And without knowing it, your worship becomes nothing but a formality and a coldness. You take no more delight in drawing near to God. In fact... You would rather be with others. And you find yourself then becoming the the companion of those who really don't think highly of God at all. All because you chose wrongly and poorly. And you didn't let your faith determine your decisions, but you let the flesh determine them. This is a hypothetical situation James brings before us and we need to consider the possibility of what James is teaching us. That it is possible for anyone here this morning to stray from the truth and to have need to have an intervention in our lives for someone to come and bring to us the truth of God's Word to bring through us a word of admonition so that we might be returned to the truth and avoid misery and sorrow and death and avoid the multitude of sins that James is talking about. Which is a sermon in the future. Now, brothers and sisters, why is it so probable? Why is the the possibility of us straying from the truth something that we should give contemplation to so that we're not wasting our time? I'm certainly not calling you. James is not calling you to waste your time and to consider something that is not worth your consideration at all. That's not the case. But we need to guard against a couple of things. Number one, guard against perfectionism. 
There are believers that have the idea, well, I've confessed my sins, I've prayed the sinner's prayer, I've offered up repentance, and so Jesus has covered my sins, so I no longer need to repent of my sins or be concerned about my sins. That's a great error. That's a great error. Now, brothers and sisters, I bring, to your, I bring that to your attention to ask you this question. When's the last time you felt the sting of your own sin and it caused you to repent for more than 35 milliseconds? When's the last time? When's the last time you seriously got before God and looked into heaven or looked down at the ground and said, I'm a sinner. To make the confession that Paul made, there is a war within me that delights to sin. When have you acknowledged that? We need to guard against this, this perfection. You say, well, I don't believe in perfection. No, but you act like it. You carry yourself like it. You don't need to pray. You don't need to repent. You don't need to read your Bible because you don't need to be cleansed by the Word of God. Worship has become this formality, this something we do, but it's not something I need. We also need to watch for this idea that our sanctification can be perfect and complete in this life. This idea that, yes, we are progressively being sanctified and growing more and more. Our faith is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And nothing is ever going to stop that. Nothing's going to interrupt that. Nothing's going to in any way hamper that, uh, hinder that in any way. And that we're going to somehow reach perfection before we die. That's not going to happen either. Now, brothers and sisters, what we're going to learn this morning is that we are constantly under the state of progressive sanctification until the day we die. Until the day we die. That there is a battle raging in each and every believer and this battle is indicative of only the Christian. Only the Christian. The sinner doesn't battle the flesh. He lives in the flesh. The unconverted doesn't battle the flesh. He lives and thrives in the flesh. The flesh is his life. They sin and sin and love to sin. And any good they possibly do is only to pander to their flesh. Only the Christian. Now brothers and sisters, if you're not, if there's not a sting in your mind and conscience and heart, over things you know that are wrong. Can you be a Christian? Can you give the same testimony of Paul? Can you? Because Paul certainly felt the sting of his own sin. He felt that call and that beckoning of his flesh to do what? Sin more and sin more and sin more and sin more. Don't walk by the Spirit. In fact, we know and we've looked at the verse many times over the last several weeks that the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit wars against the flesh so that you do not do what you want. Listen to one theologian 
He said in progressive sanctification, the several lusts of the old man, that's another name for this desire that I'm talking about, old man, are more and more weakened and mortified. In initial sanctification, the Spirit of Christ enters the heart with all of His train of graces and implants them there. In progressive sanctifications, these graces are more and more quickened and strengthened. Now, you've got to love the picture. Christ comes into our life, and what does He come into our life with? These train of graces of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, good. All the things that we've looked at in James where these trials are to what? Strengthen and mature these graces. And this is where we, by faith, begin to put our hands to what we call gospel obedience. It's not an obedience by which we merit salvation. It's an obedience by which we claim our salvation or our, uh, support our salvation. Our obedience is gospel-oriented to show and demonstrate that we have been saved. Listen to another explanation. This may be clearer to you. Because I want you to have the mindset that this war that's raging and where this possibility of error comes from is within each of you. It's in you. He says this indwelling corruption vehemently stirs up the affections. And once the affections have been set in motion, they can tolerate neither consolation nor delay, but as a madman, they run to execute that sin. I want you to think about using the illustration. I mean, once you feel like you've been violated and wronged, how dare God do this to me? What happened? What's excited? More sin. More sin. See, the lack of controlling one's thought life now has excited the flesh. He's excited. It's woken the old man up. And what does the old man want? More sin. Rebellion. He wants to stake the claim back that you are a man and woman of the flesh and not the Spirit. He goes on, he says, they set the entire mechanism of the man's inborn tendencies in motion and will drive a man on this insane intensity. The affections thus set everything in motion for the sanctification of our lust, for the satisfaction of our lust. And if the new man in any way opposes itself to this, he will be assaulted with all their might. Observe in these the following passages, just one. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, abstain from flesh, fleshly lust which war against the soul. That's what Peter says. Abstain from these things because they war against your soul. It's impossible, beloved, for us not to make the connection that once we begin down the road of responding by the flesh instead of by faith, that sin begets sin and leads to more sin. That's, that's, that's key to this understanding of where you're going. Let me give you an illustration, and I hope this helps. It's all, all too common to see pictures that represent the Christian life as strolling through a meadow. That's you know, walking through this beautiful meadow, I want you to picture that, with sun beaming down on the one strolling. 
And there will be a verse up under the picture and it will be this great peace and delight that this picture, uh, you know, kind of, I don't know the word, but presents to us that there's just this peace. That the believer has all this peace. But if you look hard enough, you can see what looks like Jesus' hands in the sunbeams calling that stroller home. Now, there's nothing in and of itself wrong with the picture. We can certainly have great peace. We can certainly feel the sun of God, the warmth of God's love and mercies. And all those things are true. But beloved, that's not the picture that the Scriptures teach in numerous places of the Christian life. The Christian life is one of struggle. It's one of battle. It's one of war that wages in our lives every day. I'm only speaking of one of our enemies, but there is a trinity of evil that we battle all the time. That's the flesh. That's what we're talking about this morning. And the devil and the world. This unholy trinity of evil and godlessness that we must wage war with daily if we are Christians. The true depiction of the Christian life on this side of heaven is that of a battlefield. I want you to picture this in your mind. And I want you to see yourself on it. I want, to see, I want you to see yourself standing on this battlefield. There's casualties all around you and you stand there with armor on. You get the picture? You got it in your head. I want you to see yourself there. You're dirty. You've got mud on your face. You've got your own blood and the blood of others on you. And you've been fighting the world and there's casualties. You've been polluted by the world and you're fighting it. You're fighting off that pollution. You're bloodied and bruised and wounded by your own sins. Maybe even the sins of your compatriots. Other brothers and sisters that have struck you accidentally in the battle. See yourself carrying one of your compatriots who has fallen and needs help. But your face is turned towards a bright city that shines on a hill far away. And you can see this city for it's bright. And it shines brighter than anything else around it. It's the city set on a hill that this world is not worthy of. See, that's your destination. But to get there, you have to fight. The Gospel of John talks about the Lord Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven comes by violence and force. And those who believe... Take it by force. You see, the salvation is free and it is granted to us in Christ and yet to prove or to demonstrate we actually own and possess this salvation by grace alone. We then adorn ourselves with the armor of God and then we begin to wage war against the enemies of God and the enemies of Christ and our enemies now. Did not Jesus Christ say to you, the world hates me? And the world is also going to hate you because you love me. Let's turn to Romans 7.
and look there quickly. Romans chapter 7. We've already looked at, or at least I read to you last week, Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 23 as we begin. Remember, there were no chapter breaks or verses in the original manuscripts. It was just a letter. We have these breaks for our benefit to help us study and know the Word of God easier. Uh, But yet, nevertheless... Look at verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the wages of sin is death. Paul has already taught us in chapter 6 that we have all been freed from the dominion and power of sin. And if we have been freed from its dominion and its power, then we should no longer live according to it. That we should no longer present our bodies as instruments of sin, but now of righteousness. That's chapter 6. And he stops there at that verse and he says, but now wait a minute, listen to me. The wages of sin. Sin produces what? Death. Now let's stop for a second. I don't want you to think about the graveyard death. Because that's often when we go, I'm not dead. Well, you know, it's a long time getting it. Let's just talk about the wages of sin brings forth the death of emotions of worship. Desire, godly desires. It's the death of godly desire. It's the death of companionship. It's the death of fellowship. It's the death of drawing near and delighting and glorying in God. It's the, it's the death of delighting and glorying in godly people and godly things and, and the kingdom of God in general. It's the death of all those passions and desires that the Spirit is cultivating in each and every one of you. It's the death. Now, you never can be devoid of it. You can never be completely loveless, but your love can wax and wane. And you know what? Your love can grow so cold that the Christ can come to you and say, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you that you have forsaken your first love. The church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. I want to remind you, you've, you you've, you've left your first love. And you need to come back. See, you're doing all these things. Yeah, you believe all the right things. But you don't love me. You left me. And I'm, I'm not pleased with it. And I call you back. And if you don't come back, I'll remove your testimony. I'll remove your light. I'll take it away. That's the kind of death we're talking about. I don't want you to think it's just a stone-cold graveyard kind of death. Beloved, we can grow cold and experience that wages of sin is death in our hearts, and we often do. But Paul goes on, and he begins to write, and he begins to say that, you know, that there is this war that's waging within him. Now, I'm not going to deal with the very first half of the chapter, but Paul talks about how the law excited sin in him. The law, the law of God excited sin. Paul says, I didn't understand sin until the law came and commanded me not to do something. And then sin was excited in me. 
what does Paul mean by that? Paul says, when the law commanded me not to covet, you know what I did? I coveted. Why can't I have this? Why can't I do this? Have you young people ever thought about that? When you, when you are given a good command, a command that's honoring to God, how many times has the flesh risen up and said, I don't have to do that. I don't want to do that. That's stupid. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says the law excited sin in me and taught me that, you know what? What was, that is, now I see, you know what? I'm a rebellious creature. And Paul comes to Christ and he talks about, he says, now, is the problem with the law? Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin since it excites sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. It was the law that showed me how wretched I am. It was the law of God that showed me just the depth and nature of my own corruption, and how much I truly needed Christ, how much I truly needed to draw near to Him. It was the law that did that. Yes, the law excited the fleshly passions within me. How many of us like being told what to do? Where does that come from? The flesh. The flesh. Paul goes on in verse 14, doesn't he? He says, For we know that the law is spiritual. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that well, the law cut him to the heart. That the law showed him the depth of his own corruption and how he was not good at all, but sinful. He says, But I'm a man of the flesh. Sold into bondage to sin. The idea here, I love what one commentator said about it. He says, you know, how many promises do we, does sin make to us? If you just do this, you'll be happy. And when you believe that promise and you act out on that sin, you know what you're doing? You're selling yourself into bondage. You're selling yourself as a slave. And you know what? And in that slavery, you're never going to get anything that was promised. Because you're never going to be happy. Because sin cannot bring happiness. Sin cannot bring all of the benefits of grace. Sin can't do any of those things. Sin is going to constantly put a wedge and distance and a mountain between you and God. That's all sin's ever going to do. All sin's ever going to do, brothers and sisters, is separate you from God. That's it. Because the greatest thing in the world is to have closeness and fellowship with God. And sin is the opposite of that. I'm sold into sin. Whenever I believe these fleshly promises, I sell myself into bondage. If you just work all your life, I mean, you could be, look, the idolatry of work and money. You can sell yourself to these things because of the promise of great reward, and guess what? They don't deliver. They don't deliver. It's the taskmaster that makes promises that never keeps them and never plans on keeping them. But yet we believe them because we are what? Of the flesh, letting our flesh speak instead of the Spirit. Verse 15, for, I am, for what I am doing I don't understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. And Paul here is confessing that as a Christian, 
Now, see, this is where a lot of Christians make the mistake. Because I've known in counseling, I've talked to people say, well, Paul struggled with sin, and look at him. I mean, yes, Paul sinned. Yeah, he did. He certainly did. But the difference is the believer hates sin. Paul says, I hate doing the things that I shouldn't do. I hate it. I'm not going to make a practice of it, but I hate it when it happens. I hate it when I stumble. I hate it when I fall. I hate it when I let the flesh get the upper hand. Now, I want you to, can we make that confession this morning? But if I do the very things I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So no so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in, within me. Now Paul's not saying I have two personalities. I don't want you to think of the old cartoon of the Tom and Jerry. That's probably over most of your heads. I know Andre will know about it. You know Tom and Jerry, the little, the little devil or the little miniature Tom will be sitting up here and say, you need to, you need to crush that rat. You know, crush him. Kill him. And, and he's like, no, I don't want to. Yes, you need to do it. No. And, and, and so there, that, that's not what he's talking about. What Paul is saying is, he says, I have a renewal in my life. I've been renewed in Christ. I'm a new creation. But yet, all of the areas in my life that's been touched by God's grace has not yet come to perfection. There still remains in my thoughts, in my affections, my desires, in my want to, a principle that says, No. I won't do it. But the Spirit, by faith, by activation of prayer, the means of grace, the Word of God, the study, the preaching of the Gospel, all these things will do what? Strong is excited and made strong so that these desires are suppressed and grace is matured. Let's move on. I I want to... Let me mention this because I don't want to end on a negative note on this portion. Look at verse 25 because, again, this is the testimony of a Christian. A testimony of a Christian is there's nothing good that dwells in me apart from Christ. Nothing. The only good in me comes from Christ. Now, I want you to be able to testify to that this morning. Because I want you to be able to confess verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, on this side of heaven and in this life, I keep going toward that city that sits on a hill that shines brighter than any other. I'm bloodied, I'm bruised, I'm wounded, but I will not give up. I will carry the shield of faith. I will wield in my right hand the sword of the Spirit. I will Don the helmet of salvation and I will fall but I will rise again in the name of Christ and I will head toward this glorious city and I will receive at that point all that Christ has died for. Oh brothers and sisters this isn't all this this isn't all there is. If you think this is all there is to the Christian life you have a very low view of salvation but there is something much more that awaits every Christian and you this morning if this describes you. Let me go through this morning because I want to deal with some of these ways that which we ought to consider. If you go back to the book of James, 
I want to address just a couple of, 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 of things that I think some large sins, those things by which we struggle and fall, those things that which have a tendency to numb us, to dull our senses, and to foster uh, laziness. And so I think that James highlights some of these, and I just want to mention them in closing this morning, taking just in the last few minutes. First of all, let's talk about the despondency, or let me bring to your mind the despondency of trials. Or let me bring to you what happens when we become despondent in a trial. Notice what James says in verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Beloved, hard times, trials, and testings of faith can, be, can cause you to stumble. It can. When... The flesh is excited. When we begin to create for ourselves, or at least in our mind, maybe we don't verbalize it, maybe we do. Maybe in our minds we create a case that God has somehow treated us with injustice. And we want to sue God for this injustice. How do we sue God for this injustice? Well, we withdraw from fellowship with God. How do we withdraw? Well, we can't withdraw completely because the Spirit is in us and the Spirit is beckoning and working in us that which is well-pleasing in God's sight, right? We can't fully apostatize, right, if we're truly Christians. I mean, what would be the use of going after a brother or sister that is strayed and erred if you couldn't win them back? It would be foolish. So the possibility, see, we, what do we see in... Do you think after David came back from his sin, his season of deadness and misery, that he was upset with Nathan for admonishing him? Do you think David became bitter over Nathan pointing his finger in his face and saying, David, you're the man! You're the one! You're guilty. Do you think once the Lord restored David to fellowship with him, and David wrote the 51st Psalm, that he was angry with Nathan for doing that? No. No. They were more than likely closer than ever. Do you think Noah was angry with his two sons for walking in and covering up his nakedness? I bet he thanked them later. Thank you. I was drunk. I was acting foolish. Thank you for covering me up. You think Peter was angry with the Lord Jesus for coming after him and reminding him that he denied him three times, that he might repent and be restored? You think Brothers and sisters, we could go on. But the point is, 
When we face hardships, and if we don't respond in the strength of the Spirit with grace, with humility, with prayer, and the study of God's Word, when's the last time anything in your life set you to the study and the reading of God's Word? When? And I mean everybody, young people too, all of you. When's the last time anything happened in your life that you decided to be a student of the Word of God that you might know God's character? Because what happens, and James deals with this, is it affects your prayer life. Because then you fall into doubting whether or not God cares for you. That's what he says there. He says, if you lack wisdom, go to God. What does James say about the answer of prayer? He says, if you ask God for wisdom, He'll freely give it to you. And He'll give it to you abundantly. But, if you doubt, don't expect to receive anything. Why? Because you're doubting God's goodness. You're suing God because you don't really believe He has the right to do the things He does. And you bring this lawsuit. I, I doubt he really cares for me. I know. See, you see, you're calling God a liar. Because God says, I care for you. I love you. Ask of me. Ask of me. I'll give you wisdom and I'll give it to you abundantly. But don't doubt. Don't doubt my love. Don't doubt my care. Look, I bring hardships in your life to do what? To crush you? No. What does James say? Test your faith. Make it strong. So that you shine brighter and brighter and brighter. By God's grace. So there's despondency here. Hard times, difficult times can create despondency where you doubt God's mercies. You doubt the need for the church. You doubt, well, I mean, I've been doing all these things and look what happened. Why should I keep doing them? You see, that's despondency. That's got to be repented of. Doubt is another one. When we begin to doubt God's love, it's a serious error of judgment. It has a dreadful effect on our prayers, and it does treat God with contempt. Then there's self-deception. Self-deception about what? Our sin. We think we can play with it. It's not going to bite us. You know, it's the cuddly tiger in the room. You, you know, eventually, it's going to bite you. And then we doubt God's character. Because if we do sin, guess what? We blame it on God. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have sinned if God hadn't put me in this trial. I wouldn't have sinned if God had not placed me in this difficulty. And again, we're suing God. We're suing your character. God isn't what you say it is. You say you love us. You say you're, you, you care for us. You say you have all these deep and long-lasting, long-suffering and mercies to us. But I don't see it. I'm, I'm suffering here. Brothers and sisters, this is the flesh. It's in the Spirit. What about formalities? These are big things. Each one of these sins spur off into many little sins. Formality. Formalism, James deals with in chapter 1. Again, what does he say? You go to the Word of God, you study it, but you forget what you read and you go out and you look in the mirror, but you go out and you forget what you read. That's formality. Because he ends that chapter and says, what is true religion? What is it? 
True religion is taking care of the orphans and the widows, right? It's, it's being a doer of the Word of God. That is doing what you know the, the Word teaches and rendering gospel obedience. See, when you show up for worship and you give God your 30 minutes and you can go right outside and never contemplate, turn on the FM radio station, it, it just, just frees your mind from all that happened. Pre- Brothers and sisters, that's formality. It's formality. I'm sorry, it's formality. It's formalism. You have the form of godliness, but you don't have the power of godliness. We don't want to be guilty of formality, do we? We want heart religion. We want the power of the gospel living and existing in us. We want the power of gospel moving in and through us so that when we love others, they see it as the grace of God more than anything else. What about favoritism? These are big sins. Man-pleasing. We love to be man... How many of us are guilty of man-pleasing? We will offend God before we offend men. That's sin. We show favoritism and partiality to the people that can do something for us. Oh, this is rampant in the Christian church. It really is. I mean, it's you know, treating pastors like celebrities. Treat Churches have celebrity status. Oh, if you could just go to that church, you would be immune and insulated from your own flesh. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. Because it's in you and it's going to leave with you and it's going to come in with you and it's going to go everywhere you go because it's in you. It's just favoritism. You know, it's the whole celebrity circuit, pastor circuit, Christian conferences and all these things, brothers and sisters. You know what the church needs? The church doesn't need. And I'm not not begrudging conferences. There's some really good ones out there. But you know what we don't? We don't need conferences as a Christian. We need to come to church prepared to worship God, prepared to hear from Him, prepared to go home, think about what we've learned, and say, Lord, You used my pastor and the book of James to show me something that I don't like about myself. And you gave me a great gospel motivation that if I will tend to these things, guess what? I'll have great peace in life. And my faith will grow. Lord, you've shown me this. Lord, now I put myself to this work. But you know what? We never think of it again. But oh, if we think if this pastor preaches to me, oh, if I was just a member of this church, oh, if I go to this conference somehow, I'm going to achieve this level and degree of spirituality and perfection. No, no, you won't. No, you won't. How many times have you been excited and it only lasts but a breath? And you're right back to your old habits. Last thing I want to deal with is presumption. Presuming upon God, presuming upon our lives, presuming upon everything. Oh, that'll never happen to me. Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. That's being presumptuous if you're not putting your hands to gospel obedience. Then you're blessed. Blessings come from those who are in Christ and rendering gospel obedience. Not just because we say the words. When we act presumptuous, when we want to plan, when we, when we treat 
our lives as if God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care or that He has no hand in it that we shouldn't consider first by prayer what He thinks. Are we not acting like atheists who do the same thing? What's the difference? Well, i tell you what the difference is. The difference is an atheist is being consistent and the Christian isn't. The Christian that should seek God's counsel, seek God's faith, seek God's acceptance, to wonder, Lord, is this pleasing in your sight? Ought to at least consider Him first and along the way. Now, when we act in presumption, it excites the flesh. Well, what should we do about this consideration or contemplation of our proneness to error? What should we do about it? Well, brothers, I, I want you to keep close to God by keeping close to His Word. That is, if you want to remain close to God or come back to being close to God, then you're going to have to get close to the things that God has given to you. The Word of God. Prayer. Worship. Humility. You know what James says about the Word of God in chapter 1? Able to save your souls. Isn't it interesting the correspondence? You leave the truth in chapter 5, 19 and 20. What happens? Death. Multitude of sins. In chapter 1, what is the Word of God able to do when you study it and obey it? Save your souls. Humility. Exercise humility. Be humble. Jesus humbled Himself and was born into this world. Love. Love for God. Love for self. Love for neighbor. Worship. Service. Feeding the poor. Helping the widow. Helping your brother and sister. Prayer. Patience. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you where you are with all these things because this is how you draw near to God. This is how you do it. So if you want to contemplate your proneness to error, I want you to ask yourself, do I believe it? And if I believe it, what does that look like in my life? If I have the, the possibility of, of, of this proneness to stray from the truth, how do I keep from doing it? And if I believe that, will I practice it? If not, I would say, brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and these words did not ring true to you, you need Christ. Let's pray.